This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. That's kind of how I found my my passion for weather and for what I do is by combining you know weather and my experience as uh, on local emergency management and fuse those together. Hey, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host Todd Devoe here with you for this uh, really cool topic that we're going to be talking about weather. So it's kind of an apropos time uh, to talk about weather because today in Southern California, it's raining out. I'm sitting here in my studio looking out and looking at the rain. It's beautiful. I love the rain. In the Northeast, it's getting walloped with a nor'easter. I'm from New York originally, and, and so I, I do prefer the, the rainy days and the nice you know weather like this compared to the crazy snowstorms that occur back there. But uh, my friends and family are sharing those pictures with me on Facebook, and it's amazing to see the winter wonderland that's occurring right here in March. So March is definitely going out like a lion. We are a week closer to announcing some cool new features on Ian Weekly, and I wish I could announce them now. Brian is working really hard on this, and he listens, and so, you know, I don't want to uh, take away from what he's doing over there, because there's still some things that he's working on the back end, and we're really close to announcing what we're doing over there. Some of you, I've given some sneak peeks into it, so let me know what you guys think about those who uh, were able to take the sneak peek in. Uh, Some of you guys that are on the Facebook group got to see it, too. So I'm really excited about this coming up, and uh, man, I just wish I could tell more, but I can't, so I won't, and... uh, I don't want Brian to be all all mad at me. He's my buddy, and I like to keep it that way. In the Ask Todd inbox, I received a question about EOC communication tools, such as like WebEOC or those type of things. And the question specifically was about Slack or those type of project management um, tools that they have out there. Slack was the one that was mentioned, so that's why I mentioned Slack. And can you use that in the EOC as a communications tool with the current their, their current tool that they're using, I believe it was WebEOC. So my short answer is, mm, sure you can, but you want to streamline your tools that you're logging into, and it reduces that training line that you have regarding logging into things, what they can be used for uh, under stressful situations. Do you want to add that additional step in there? If your tool that you're currently using doesn't work the way you want it, and especially with like WebEOC, ask them and see if they will develop something uh, along the lines. They might be even working on something like that right now because they're always developing new new boards and whatnot. Uh, I know the companies really are, well, most of them are really receptive and, and looking to improve their the quality of their product. So ask them and tell them this is what your need is and see if they can develop it. Um, if they can't or won't, uh, maybe it's time to look for a new tool. Look for a better company that's willing to work with you. Took a look at Slack. And it's kind of a cool project management tool. Lots of lots of features that are on there. I don't use it personally. Never really played with it. I was talking to a few friends about it. Uh, it does have some capabilities, and you know, if that's something that you want to do, it's not a bad one to choose. But like I was saying before, you don't want to increase the number of logins and whatnot that you're going to have in the middle of an emergency, especially with people that are coming up to your EOC that don't use it on a daily basis. And you know, so adding that additional step um, can sometimes be confusing. 
you might miss communications that way. And you just really want to streamline that communications process uh, for everybody involved in the event. I know that was a short answer, but again, it comes to tools like this, our, our personal preference and, and what your agency likes to work with. And so ask this one question when choosing that tool is, can it do what I need it to do at the time I wanted to do it? And if you can answer yes to that with 90% of an accuracy on it, I would say stick with that. So that's kind of where we're at with that question. So thank you so much. So if you do have any EM related questions, click on the Ask Todd tab um, at the EM Weekly website, www.emweekly.com. You know, if I don't know what the answer is, I will find out and I'll find the person who does. So also, speaking of that, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And on Facebook, you can also join our group page. And there you can interact with other emergency management professionals. And you can ask questions over there and share stories and, and share your best practices and what's going on. And it's a really fun place to kind of do that and get to be out with everybody else in the emergency management EM Weekly community. I'm really excited today. I am going to talk about weather with an actual meteorologist named Kyle Nelson. And Kyle and I actually met at the 2017 International Association of Emergency Managers Conference in Long Beach. And we started chit-chatting about weather. And I have to admit, I am a weather geek. I have a weather station at my house. The guys, some of my friends and I, we do a competition when we're going to get rain, whenever that happens, in uh, in Orange County. And we challenge each other to see if we can guess how much it's going to rain during that storm period. And we're only allowed to look at the weather uh, stations once. So that's <laughs> that's how the game is played. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm an admitted weather geek. So when I met Kyle, we started chit-chatting. I said, I got to get you on the show because he is independent meteorologist. And what is that? Well, we're going to find out. So Kyle, welcome to EM Weekly. Hey, Todd, thanks for having me on the show. Great to meet another weather geek. <laughs> so, Kyle, what exactly is an independent meteorologist? Oh, man. Well, I like to define independent meteorologist as, you know, someone who is more than just a meteorologist. Because going through the academia and the classroom side of it, well, that's all well and good. But on the independent side, I like the flexibility that that brings. Uh, I choose to apply myself in the public safety and emergency management realms. Uh, so doing weather decision support for pre-planned events and emerging incidents, as well as doing forecasting for fixed sites and facilities uh, like where I work out in Colorado. So it's uh, really can't place one definition on it, but it definitely, I think, gives you the flexibility to ebb and flow and kind of chase your dreams. That's really kind of cool. So, I mean, are you sort of like a, a quasi storm chaser type person or is it a little bit more in depth than that? Well, it can definitely get more depth than that. Uh, I'm not much of a storm chaser myself. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in the Midwest, I was uh, kind of in the storm, uh, storm spotting at the local level through our local Skywarn weather spotter program. I'm a huge advocate of that. Uh, so if you haven't uh, checked out your local Skywarn spotter program, those are coming out here in the spring. Look for your local National Weather Service uh, on their website and get trained up and uh, that's kind of how I found my my passion for weather and for what I do is by combining you know, weather and my experience as uh, on local emergency management and fuse those together. And now it's you know, still the meteorology side, all the science and the forecasting and that it's still all there in what I do. And the fundamentals are still the same, but it's how I choose to apply that knowledge and uh, communicate it is to a different audience in a little bit of a different format. 
So as emergency managers, and I know we all care about weather, so the question is going to be a little jaded here, but why should we care about weather? Why should it be important for us to have a meteorologist in the emergency operations center if we can get one? Oh, that's a great question, Todd. So why should you care about weather, right? Well, that's one, you know, it, it's it's easy if we, you know, some of us live in places where the weather doesn't change much or you don't have the big extremes like some certain places in the uh, Southwest, uh, for example, where it's, you know, hot and sunny seemingly every day and then the occasional passing shower, you know, turns traffic to chaos. So that might be one reason to care about weather. And uh, kind of what I throw out when, when I posed that question is, Weather affects your day-to-day operations, whether you realize it or not, because even something as benign as, you know, a a passing rain shower or, you know, a thunderstorm, you know, any one of these events that you seemingly kind of are lulled into a a sense of, oh, we got this, we've seen this before, we've dealt with it before, you know, at the local level, all the way to our high impact events like severe weather tornadoes, hurricanes, flash flooding, and things that we plan for as emergency managers, weather affects our operations and it affects our planning. So if we can better understand it, or even better, have someone, it's like a meteorologist, a true degreed meteorologist who's trained also in emergency management and communication in your EOC or emergency operations center, that is an invaluable relationship to have because that way you can have the folks with the local expertise, local training and local knowledge informing your operations, keeping the folks in the field safe and allowing your planning section to plan ahead to the next operational period if you're in a situation like that where you can then plan around any weather hazards that may be forecast to occur. So yeah, I, I really understand that. It's really kind of cool. So you know, so you're telling me that the weather guy doesn't just take a dartboard with a picture of clouds on it and throws random darts to to make his uh, forecast. Uh no. Nor do we uh, really rely on the groundhog method either. But that's neither here nor there. It's <laughs> it's it's soundly based in science, Todd. It may not seem like it at times, you know, the the old adage, oh, you know, you weather folks can, you know, you're the only ones who can do your job wrong 50% of the time and still get paid. You know, I kind of laugh at that and look at it as job security. So it all depends on your perspective, I guess. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. So I know that, you know, in Southern California specifically where, you know, where I operate and I kind of tend to come from that as my launch off point is we really use a lot of weather forecasting when it comes to our fire weather. You know, obviously people around here, we get the red flag warnings with the winds coming in and we're worried about the Santa Ana's coming out of the desert to push fires around. And and we saw some of those issues, right, this year in California, not just Southern California, but Northern California and Santa Rosa and Central California with the Santa Barbara fires, uh, Thomas fire specifically. What's the difference between normal forecasting and say, say fire forecasting? I can't really say that there's a difference between the two because as part of the normal forecast, you know, we're considering as meteorologists all the, you know, just not just the immediate weather hazards, but the effects that can cascade from them. And with regard to fire weather specifically, that's where now, we have experts at the Storm Prediction Center located in Norman, Oklahoma, that are not just looking at doing severe weather forecasting, but also fire weather forecasting, since especially for uh, us in the, the southwest and the western uh, mountains here in the United States, our fire weather often revolves around uh, thunderstorm activity. 
uh, specifically dry thunderstorms. So starting from a lightning strike and things like that. And so that's something where uh, as as forecasters, that's a highly specialized skill set that's trained and developed over time. And you're looking at very specific criteria and things, not just to include what's happening in the atmosphere, but what's happening at the ground level as well. Like I know here in Colorado, we you know, if things don't change pretty soon, for this year, here in 2018, we're looking at a pretty active start to the wildfire season uh, being predicted due to, you know, we have a very shallow snowpack that's going to disappear quickly. So you have low fuel moisture in addition to, you know, sloping terrain and, you know, high winds that can kick up around here in addition to uh, as we warm up, especially into the spring and summertime, you know, dry weather conditions, so low dew points and low relative humidities that ultimately all combine together to generate what we call fire weather. Right. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty intense time in our uh, in our climate today, huh, with the fire weather. Let's talk a little bit about climate change. And I, I want to just kind of go on a limb here to everybody that I'm not politically talking about climate change, whether you believe it's man-made or, or whether you believe it's uh, cyclical or, or whatever the situation is. I think we can all agree that we're in some sort of shift in what the climate was to where it's going. It's been warmer. Rain has been less. How, how is that affecting our ability to predict whether things like the El Ninos and the El Ninas and, and uh, those type of things? So climate change isn't affecting our ability to predict the natural variations that occur in our atmosphere. Uh, if anything, we're actually getting better at observing them and predicting them uh, on a, a longer term basis. So things like you mentioned, so El Nino or La Nina, a, uh, you know, a warming or cooling of surface ocean waters in the central Pacific, respectively. Uh, this year we find ourselves, or this season I should say, uh, we find ourselves in a La Nina situation with cooler than normal surface temperatures in the Pacific. And those natural cycles in Earth's atmosphere, those are known to be occurring. But it's when we start to consider the human influences on our atmosphere and on on our globe, our Earth, the place that we call home, and how uh, through you know, human activities, we are modifying our climate and, as we say, shifting our extremes. And so we're seeing more of these extremes, and it's, it's hard to you know, for folks sometimes to to say, and you know, I, and I, I'm not coming at it from a political side either, but more of a, a factual scientific side in what we've observed. Where, you know, if you, in, and I like to kind of put it in context here, where think about you know your like a bell curve, if you will. So you have your kind of your weather normals, like what you expect on your day to day or seasonal basis. Like this, these, this is the normal for this time of year for your area, and that would be near the center of your bell curve. And then you have the outliers near either end, and those are your extremes. So if we shift that bell curve ever so slightly in a warming, you know, in a warming climate, as we shift that and say we're also then in turn shifting how extreme our extremes can get. So it's all about having a matter of perspective. It's not like you're going to automatically it within the next year or even 10 years see direct effects perhaps at perhaps at your specific location, but areas such as coastal regions where we're seeing you know sea level rise and inundation. You know, look talk to emergency management folks uh, in Florida who are seeing this 
currently happening and where they're having to raise streets and, and buildings and things to mitigate against the observed and further projected effects of global climate change. And we're getting away from that global warming thing because the warming is not equal all over the globe. There are some areas of the globe that are actually cooling, but it's it's global climate change that we're talking about. And it's undeniable that humans are influencing how our climate is changing here on Earth. Yeah, I know. It's 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 a it's definitely a hard thing for us to, to get our, our grasp around. One of the things that I think and this is again. I, this is an opinion. I don't. I haven't done the, the data, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that I'm seeing. We're seeing a lot more building out of areas that used to be able to absorb water when it rained. Um, and Houston's a really good example of it. There was a sh- whole show podcast that was put on by NPR, and they were talking about how areas in Houston that were actually marked as being a floodplain um, were developed, and there's concrete and there's asphalt all laid throughout this area and homes were built. And so the area wasn't able to absorb the water that was coming in that probably should have. Is that impacting the weather as well? Or is it just impacting the Earth's ability to take on that rain? So the human modification of, uh, for in this example, our, our surface cover, where we're taking uh, natural areas that used to have natural soils and trees and things like that, And now we're placing these impermeable surfaces where water can't get through. So instead of rain falling, hitting the earth and becoming groundwater and going into the hydrologic system locally, it's instead hitting these surfaces, whether it be the roofs of buildings, whether it be uh, asphalt or concrete parking lots, and then running off as surface water runoff, uh, that is becoming an an increased problem. And it's further compounding uh, the effects that we see uh, from a warming climate, which as you know, in air that is warmer, you have more potential to hold more moisture. So as a result, if you know our climate as a whole is warming, then we are also then able to have our atmosphere hold more water, which then leads to more intense rainfalls and greater rainfalls uh, over areas where perhaps historically they have not occurred. And now you compound that with how humans have been modifying our infrastructure and uh, perhaps not, you know, planning for, you know, how those infrastructures would be kind of impacted by the projected effects of global climate change. That can lead to some problems uh, hyper locally, as uh, many areas have experienced. Right. Okay. Well, I have a question. I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about the weather that was happening during Harvey and the phenomenon that I was reading about, and how that exactly worked. So we'll be right back after the short break and some words from our sponsors. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time, and how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. 
get a jump start on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. So, Kyle, welcome back from the break. And uh, before I went to the break, I kind of alluded to a question regarding some issues that with Harvey and some of the stuff I read and also uh, the briefing that I got that w- from the National Weather Service with Alex Tardy. And he was talking about the fact that there was, we had like really, really nasty, gray, humid weather in California when Harvey was going on. And he alluded to the fact that this was part of the reason why Harvey was so strong because it was sucking water in and that it created a stall. What exactly is that and how, I mean, like, how, how does this stuff like that happen scientifically? Oh, man. Uh, so Hurricane Harvey was, uh, it, it set records on so many levels. And it, it was in part due to uh, what we as meteorologists call a blocking pattern. And uh, if you recall from uh, when Harvey was setting up and forecasters were predicting these, uh, what at the time were termed insane rainfall amounts, you know, 30, 40, 50 inches or more over the Houston and surrounding areas. Uh, It was due to, you know, Hurricane Harvey uh, sitting and just training or persisting over that area for a long amount of time. And that was because uh, to just to the west uh, of Texas, over the southern Rockies, there was a high pressure system that was in place. And with uh, that setup in place, it uh, didn't allow the the winds in the middle part of the atmosphere that steer hurricanes to come in and push Hurricane Harvey for, to the north or to the east or away uh, from the Houston area, where typically hurricanes, you know, they're here, they're gone, they they can travel even sometimes slowly, they still move or have some type of forward motion. In this case, it didn't. And it was because of that, that blocking pattern that set up over the western U.S. So it was a kind of a cascade effect that because uh, these systems weren't, weren't moving the high pressure to the west, the low pressure that was Hurricane Harvey over the Houston area, just locked in place until a very strong uh, jet stream was able to come in and finally kick that system away from the Texas coast. That's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, you know, like I said, most people just think of the weather as when they turn on the news and they see their local weatherman say, yeah, it's going to be sunny and warm or it's going to be raining or, you know, make sure you have your umbrella. But there's a lot more, a lot more to to this whole thing called weather that we all have to live with. So, in this system here that occurred with Harvey, there's really, at this point, there's absolutely nothing that we can do until, you know, the weather decides to make a change and people just kind of have to be prepared and to live with that. Now, is that caused in part by the climate change or is that just one of those things that just happened to happen? Well, we cannot yet attribute any specific or any one event, uh, whether it be local or a, a very, very widespread event, uh, like a hurricane or a severe uh, thunderstorm or tornado outbreak to climate change. But uh, climate change is absolutely influencing events, both current uh, and historical. I mean, uh, some of you may recall uh, extreme events such as, you know, Typhoon Haiyan in the Western Pacific back in 2013, uh, the Indian heat wave, which killed, you know, 
thousands uh, back in 2015, the El Reno tornado in 2013, Hurricane Sandy 2012. The list goes on, but it's events like these and Hurricane Harvey can absolutely be added to the list that are influenced by Earth's changing climate. And uh, one of the effects that we are seeing globally is with the warming atmosphere due to you know uh, emissions of greenhouse gases amplifying the greenhouse effect on a global scale in a warmer atmosphere you the atmosphere can hold more moisture that more moisture uh, is one of the ingredients that helps to uh, fuel these uh, tropical systems including hurricanes like hurricane harvey and with uh, a warmer atmosphere that can hold more moisture that can ultimately lead to heavier uh, rainfall events over you know more hyper local areas and so uh, hurricane harvey absolutely was uh, indeed influenced by cl- uh, climate change but it's the reason that it sat in one place and uh, the reason that it behaved the way that it did we cannot yet tie changes on the global climate scale to those little minute things that ultimately resulted in a catastrophic event for Houston and the surrounding area. So one of the misnomers that we always hear about, especially, you know, because before it was being called global warming and now we're at climate change, that it's going to be warming. And because it's warming, you know, everything's going to be just hotter, right? And then when we see these massive snowstorms that hit the Northeast last year, um, like the Boston um, snow blizzard that occurred and those Northeasterns that that always uh, always occurring, um, that doesn't necessarily rule that cold, snowy events out, right? Ah, Todd, that's one of my favorite questions. So with, you know, does one snowfall event or one extreme weather event, uh, does that disprove climate change or this uh, idea that, you know, the Earth's climate is is warming as a whole? And the answer is simply no. There was a a famous case where you had a a congressman on on television who he brought a snowball to the floor of – you know, of Congress, and he said, because it is snowing outside, there is no way that Earth's climate can be warming. Because if it was warming, there's no way I'd have this snow, uh, the snowball from snow that's occurring outside. It's little events like this. People like to cherry pick them, and it's and it's important, I think, to at this point create and to identify the difference between weather and climate. So climate is an average of weather events over the long term. So we're talking 30 years or more where weather is what's happening right now outside your window that your weather station is measuring that your app is telling you how you know what the temperature is the wind speed the direction and things like that all those variables define what the weather is what is actually occurring where climate is a long-term average of those conditions and so you know overall over the earth the average global temperature is increasing you know, due to, you know, human effects. And so because of that, we're not seeing all those warming effects everywhere. Some areas of the globe are actually cooling, even though Earth's atmosphere as a whole is warming. So so it's important then to, to also think about this. And I like to throw out a couple of analogies where, you know, weather is your mood and climate is your personality, where, you know, your mood can change and swing wildly throughout the day. You know, those of us with significant others know this. Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, where, where personality, it's, it's, it's defined. That's, that's an average over the very long term. What defines you and your personality? So you can think of Earth the same way, where you have these weather extremes uh, that can occur and the weather that occurs day to day. But then in the background, influencing all of that 
is that background climate or personality, if you will. Right. So one of the programs that the National Weather Service has is the Storm Ready Program. And I actually went through that program and a few times. It's a pretty cool program. They, they come and take a look at your, your plan and they see if you're addressing weather concerns based upon your area and, and, and your plan. So it's a really actually good uh, plan check if you want to think of it that way, uh, where the National Service checks off on your plan. But the cool part about this is that you're thinking about weather events. And as emergency managers, that's one of those things that we really need to consistently think about how does the weather affect how we're going to be able to evacuate? How does the weather affect how the fire burns for us? How does the weather affect our, our planning in the future? You know, and to think about that through the plan. Now, that being said, with the way things are going on right now, what can we do as emergency managers to keep that in our plan throughout it? And what can we do about that? So moving forward as a emergency management community, as we said from the beginning, Weather affects our operations day to day, you know, for our normal routine operations, as well as for special events and things that may come up uh, unexpectedly as well in our communities. And uh, one of the programs to uh, ensure that that's being done, uh, especially at at the local level, is the Storm Ready program that you mentioned, Todd. And I can't uh, say enough about the program. I'm a huge advocate of it. Um, I'm a a Storm Ready supporter myself through a few of the uh, consulting uh, gigs that I work through. And it's really, really awesome to be able to, you know, really kind of take some of the concepts from the Storm Ready program. And, and some folks, uh, it, it is, I admit, you know, it, it, some can say, oh my gosh, it, it's another application, another thing we have to go through. I just went through EMAP accreditation. Now I have to go through the Storm Ready thing, all these pushbacks to it. But I'll tell you right now that I've never seen an eight page federal application before in my life. That's eight pages. And so just to kind of highlight just some of the, the benefits of it and how we can use those, the tenants of the Storm Ready program to to keep ourselves with a weather ready mindset going forward uh, throughout the year is thinking about, you know, communications and your ability to monitor weather 24-7 within uh, your community, as well as having a way to amplify or to disseminate uh, weather information and warnings. If you already have a system in place for that, whether it's uh, your 911 dispatch or public safety answering point doing the monitoring, whether you have a duty officer in your emergency operations center on a uh, 24-7 basis, however that process works, you know that's one of the boxes that you can check off on that application to keep your mindset in a weather-ready mode. Now you look at, okay, how am I receiving information from the National Weather Service? With all this the weather hazards that could affect my area, how can I get notified if one of those weather hazards is either in the forecast, if it's has the potential to occur, say we're in the watch phase, so we have the potential for hazardous weather to occur uh, in or near our area, or if it is actually occurring. So if the threat is imminent, so we have a, a warning, or if it's a, a nuisance condition, so we might be in the advisory status of things. You know, How are we receiving that information with our agency so that we can keep ourselves, our staff, and our communities safe and informed? You know, How do we monitor weather locally? And also then how do we push that information? If it's say a, a watch or a warning, how do we disseminate that to our partners in our area of responsibility, in our community? So it's things like this that we're thinking about so that we can keep ourselves in a weather ready track. And we're doing this year round because weather 
doesn't take a day off. And while we do have seasons that we like to, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. You have seasons, that, right? For, for hazardous weather, like, oh, you know, on the Great Plains, there's tornado season, you know, and then there's, you know, oh, we have hurricane season that's defined by these hard and fast dates. But as we saw back in 2017, we had tropical systems beginning to occur well before the start of the official Atlantic hurricane season as it is defined. So just keeping in mind that if conditions become favorable, these weather hazards can occur any time of year. So keeping yourself on your toes and going through a program like Storm Ready, it's also a great badge of honor you can wear and and also promote within your community. And it's also a really neat thing to show your boss and be like, hey, boss, this is really cool. Let's get some good uh, PR out of this and let's help carry this organization forward. Right, right. It's, it's, it's true. That is awesome. Yeah, we get a lot of pictures taken, all that kind of stuff, so it's a lot of fun. So piggyback on the, on the Storm Ready program, and you mentioned earlier the Skywarn program. Can you talk a little bit about the Skywarn program, what that is, and why we should support that as emergency managers? Oh, absolutely. The Skywarn program is a, a program that is championed by the National Weather Service at the local level. So your local National Weather Service office, and if you don't know who that is or who your local office is, just go to weather.gov, that's weather.gov. That is different from weather.com, for those of you that are wondering. Uh, Weather.gov, put in your zip code there in the search box in the upper left, and then you'll be taken to your local weather service office's uh, forecast page. Connect with your warning coordination meteorologist, or WCM, at that office, and they are your point of contact as a local emergency manager. First and foremost, that should be your step. Uh, If you don't, as an emergency manager, have your local warning coordination meteorologist their number programmed in your phone and posted by the uh, duty officer's desk in your emergency operations center or watch center, get on that. So <laughs> seriously, seriously, uh, it's an it's an invaluable relationship to have. They are also your local point of contact for the Skywarn program that's offered in your area. And the Skywarn program is offered by your local weather service office, and it's typically one to two hours tops that trains folks from at all levels, from community volunteers, community organizations, as well as you, your staff, your leadership, uh, from public safety to emergency management and on up from there, how to observe and identify hazardous weather in your area. So it's it's very tailored, it's very hyper-local, and it, it highlights examples from historic weather that has occurred in your area of responsibility before. And what this empowers you to do is to have a greater network of local information in your area. Because with all of the technology and the automated systems that we have nowadays, think about how difficult it can be sometimes just to get weather conditions on a, on a normal blue sky day and as to what the temperature is or what the wind speed and direction is. If you say you have a hazmat incident, right? You're kind of averaging between two disparate or very distanced apart weather stations. And you're kind of averaging saying, oh, well, the wind should be about this much. Well, now think about that with regard to heavy snowfall with regard to rainfall, with regard to any type of hazardous weather, even something very hyper-local like damaging winds or a tornado. If you can build a very dense network of trained individuals that know how to identify and report these things to your local National Weather Service office and to your emergency management office, right there, 
your operations are better informed and you can appropriately direct response assets to the areas of your community that are being impacted the hardest. So the Skywarn program is incredibly valuable and the best part, it's my favorite four-letter F word, free. Absolutely, totally free. Partner up. If you can't, if you're having trouble filling a class by yourself, partner with a neighboring jurisdiction, a neighboring county. Bring that in. Have folks connect with their local meteorologist. You never know if you might have uh, some other weather weenies in your midst. Yeah, weather weenies. Love them. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I really support that program too. And for those of you that have like CERT programs or VIPs programs or RACES programs, stuff like that, or other Citizen Corps programs, that's a really great free, fun addition to your uh, to your teams. And the people who went through the program, they enjoy it and are going to be a really good asset for you. And it gives you the ability to give a nice training to those uh, volunteers um, at, a, at a zero cost for you. You maybe have to buy some coffee and some cookies and stuff like that. But at the most part, you know, it's a free program. So uh, I agree with you right there. Okay, we're coming up to the end here, and I have the hardest question of the day for you. What book or books or publication do you recommend to somebody who is, number one, into emergency management weather, or number two, into general leadership? Ooh, well, Todd, I got two of them for you, and and you'll see how they tie together here. So the first is called Smart Talk by Lisa Marshall. Uh, she's a professional speaking coach and public speaker, and you know when I first found my passion for public speaking and community outreach uh, during grad school. I knew the material, the, the science of weather and meteorology very well, but I struggled to deliver it effectively in a public setting outside of the scientific community. And so uh, Smart Talk really helped me to hone my public speaking skills. And so that's one that I absolutely recommend. The second book is called 541 Stories from the Joplin Tornado. Uh, that's one. It's by Randy Turner and John Hacker very highly recommended you know as a as a scientist and and I like to think sometimes as you know emergency management types we can sometimes become engrossed in numbers definitions and criteria for things where there's a human side to weather disasters and that's not always well communicated but after the Joplin Missouri tornado on May 22nd 2011 killed over 160 people you know we knew as a weather and public safety community that something had to change. You know, triple digit tornado deaths in 2011 after we thought we had it licked. But you hear from reading 541, the tales of heroism, bravery, human suffering and perseverance. It, Me personally, it made a deep impression on me and I think it would make a deep impression on you all as well. And just, it, it reframes what it means to experience a disaster through a human lens. And it's a very, very valuable perspective that has uh, stuck with me since I read that book. So 541 Stories from the Joplin Tornado. That's great. And I love books like that. So I'm definitely going to look, look that one up and, and get it. So thanks for that recommendation. Kyle, if somebody really wanted to get a hold of you, how could they get a hold of you? Well, Todd, folks can find me on all the social media platforms under the handle WXKyleNelson. So feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram or connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I'd love to connect with any of your amazing listeners and continue the conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to, to emergency managers before we let you go? So to emergency managers, I want to just emphasize that it's easy to place a stigma 
or a definition on what it is to have a to know a meteorologist or to have one in your EOC, right? They're the weather nerds that sit in the back room and in their ivory tower, they give you the forecast and that's it. But the game is changing. We realize as a weather community that we haven't done the best with communicating weather and climate and the science hazards to you all who are the decision makers charged with keeping communities safe. And so the game has changed and there's folks like myself and many others, especially in the National Weather Service, that are continuing to redefine what it means to support your decision making when it comes to severe and hazardous weather being forecasted in your area. Welcome us into your EOCs. Welcome us into your operations. And uh, if you know if the National Weather Service can't do it, there are many other great private companies that can provide the level of support and monitoring that you may need. So leave the technical expertise and interpretation of all the models and the climate and stuff like that to the experts and focus on the operational side of things. And we'll give you all the information we can to make the best decisions uh, so that you can keep folks safe in the field. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for uh, for being here with me tonight. And uh, I do really appreciate everything that you're doing out there. And yeah, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. 